Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco Radio. This week, we'll review Monaco's quality of life survey. I think you could level the charge that our cities that we choose tend to be more safe than excited. But we're not picking safe cities to be safe. We're picking safe cities because we think that's an important part of cities that need to be addressed. Plus, a new category for African music at the Grammys. It is a participatory process, and so ultimately it is about the membership and the community from within to decide on how these changes continue to evolve. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Today is a bit of a quality of life special. So Monaco's quality of life issue is out this week. And to celebrate, we had a special series running on the Globalist every day of the week. Let's start with the first installment. Every year, as you know, we published a survey with the best cities in the world to put down roots. Over 16 years, the survey has tracked changes in how we live and run our cities and ruffled a few competitive feathers along the way. To start the series, our foreign editor, Alexis Self, sat down with Monaco's editor, Josh Fannett, to discuss how this year's ranking came together and to review which city secured fourth place. Josh, you haven't quite been here since Monaco was founded in 2007, but almost. So you would have seen a lot of these quality of life surveys. What's your understanding of why we began doing this survey and, and why we continue to do it still? Well, I've lived in cities since then, Lex, so I'm more than qualified. And actually, that joke aside, what we're quite interested in at Monocle and always have been is this idea of us all being participants in the city, of it not just being a set of metrics, a city's not its population, it's not its crime statistics, it's the way it makes you feel as you move through it. And I think the Monocle Quality of Life Index, as it changed during the pandemic, as all of our priorities changed, has been about exploring that debate. It's about the plurality of cities and the excitement of them. We're interested in the big and the small. We're interested in what the mayors are doing, but we're also interested in what the citizenship are doing and what they're thinking and how to just nudge cities, because they are big, ungovernable at times behemoths, into interesting directions. So I think that's where the idea for the city survey came from. Yeah, and I suppose on an, an elemental level, for us, cities are the most exciting places to live. You know, they are nexuses of opportunity. And this survey serves as a kind of guide for which cities we believe are the most exciting at the moment. And, and you know, perhaps we point readers towards those places that are on the up because they might be thinking about where their next investment opportunity or business opportunity might be, but also because, you know, over the past 20 years, due to changes in the way people work and travel, a very literal world of possibilities has opened up for where people can live. And, and in a way, this quality of life survey is a guide to help people inform that, you know, every single one of the entries in this survey was written by someone who has lived in the city they're writing about for a long period of time. And so they are the people best able to digest and explain what, what the good things are about that city, but also maybe what are the things that need to change a bit. Yeah, and as you say, there are two sets. There's the qualitative and there's the quantitative. I think when we started, we really thought it was important to, to, to crunch these numbers very hard, to change the metrics a little bit each year so you got a slightly different outcome, so it didn't always just say 
Well, Singapore's the best place to live because nobody's going to take your laptop if you leave it to go off to the loo when you're having a coffee. But that isn't actually what makes cities interesting. And I will pull you up, Alexis Self, on your use of the word exciting because I think you could level the charge that our cities that we choose tend to be more safe than exciting. But we're not picking safe cities to be safe. We're picking safe cities because we think that's an important part of cities that need to be addressed. And in fact, I'm going to turn the tables on you and ask you a question. There is a big debate at play about what's happening in North American cities at the minute, is there not? The the change, the, the demographic shift, the way that they're governed. And I think that's sort of reflected in our rankings as well. As I say, we change the listings every single year and we change to reflect different working patterns, the, the, the new turns that the world has taken. And I think the US has suffered, has it? Because we introduced new metrics such as retail occupancy rates and, and we found that lots of North American cities have been slow to encourage workers to return to downtowns and so there's lots of empty office buildings which obviously is not what you want from a city for it to be desolate and empty you know the number of people commuting into the city center was another metric violent crime per capita we always look at crime rates but we're looking specifically at violent crime which is very high in in some north american cities the number of rough sleepers and then the percentage change in rents since last year that was a big factor this year and then things like levels of trust in the police, which again uh, is is something that has been at the forefront of the debate about urbanity in America and levels of, of trust in the police has, has really plummeted over the past few years. And, and so that's why North American cities suffered in this year's survey. And coupled with your hardy positivism and your love of numbers, there are also lots of metrics in there to make sure that there are some universally agreeable factors that might be to do with what it might be to to live well in a city. So it is hours of sunlight, it is places to swim, it's whether your city trusts you to have a glass of wine on the pavement after midnight without having to wear a helmet and elbow pads and uh, (laughs) fill in a a permit to do it. So I think the other thing that we enjoy doing with these surveys is asking our correspondents, look, what has happened in your city over the past 12 months, which should entitle it to consideration in these surveys. And the funny thing I've thought over the, the years that I've worked on this survey is a what a privilege it is to bring into debate something that is so important to humanity two-thirds of the world's population would be living in cities by the middle of the century these aren't just places to live and for leisure these are important ways of organizing our economy and our lives to think really about what a meaningful life is so in talking about cities we try and bring a sense of place but also a sense of what's universally important about about doing them and that's why I think this survey although it's a sunny slice of life, is an important one to consider wherever you live. Well, let's hear from one of the cities on our quality of life ranking now. The top four will be revealed on Monocle Radio over the course of this week, starting with number four, Switzerland's lakeside business hub, Zurich. Monocle's Desiree Bandley will tell us why. Zurich has never been more populous. With 443,000 people calling the city home at the end of 2022, surpassing the previous record from 1962. The downside of this is the low number of flats available to rent. In June, there were just 161 in the whole city. This has led to rising housing prices and rents in a place already infamous for its high cost of living. To ease the burden on young families, citizens voted to make every school responsible for looking after children all day and feeding them at lunch. But In typical Swiss fashion, the transition period is long and the measures won't come into effect until 2030. That year, Zurich also hopes to finish installing 100 kilometers of cycle lanes, 
an initiative that sounds good on paper, but has so far seen little tangible success. The financial hub is still recovering from the downfall of Credit Suisse, a huge part of local life since 1856. With its iconic Paradeplatz headquarters, Credit Suisse was a major employer and a sponsor of many cultural events. But the city will hopefully bounce back quickly and concentrate on the many things that it does well, such as organizing big events. The Zürifest, Switzerland's largest folk festival, takes place in July for the first time since the pandemic began. The last edition attracted about 2 million visitors. Organizers hope that this year's will exceed that number and show the world how clean and efficient this Swiss city can be. My name is Andreas Hugi and I'm a spokesperson of the Zürifest. Zürifest means for the city that every three years the biggest street festival of all Switzerland takes place in the cities of Zurich, especially around the lake and in the old part of the city. And it has a huge tradition going back to a Seenachtsfest in the 1950s. I think Zurich has a huge cultural agenda for everyone, a lot of specialized festival. And I think the Zürich is the only Volksfest in German, the only street festival for everyone, where everyone can just find something for him or her. And for the second installment of the series, Switzerland's lakeside business hub Zurich came in fourth for its expansion of childcare provision and cultural offerings. But taking bronze is Munich, the Bavarian capital where technology meets tradition. The city has soared up from eighth place last year. Monaco's Yannick Schmidt can tell us why. Germany's former president, Roman Herzog, once praised Bavaria for its symbiosis between laptops and lederhosen. And in Munich, both are flourishing. The leather shorts were out last year, as Oktoberfest reopened after two years of pandemic-related restrictions. Munich's technology companies, concentrated in the Isar Valley, also thrived. The area's mix of top universities, visionary investors and local champions, such as Siemens, Infineon Technologies and BMW is increasingly being supplemented by US titans. In step with Amazon, IBM, Microsoft and Google, Apple will boost its presence with a 1 billion euro investment. Critics warn of gentrification, but it will bring jobs, know-how and new charging stations. Mobility has benefited from a dedicated municipal department that has built cycle tracks, pedestrian zones and the first meters of long-planned bike highways, connecting the suburbs to the center. Planners have been further emboldened by successful experiments, including transforming car lanes into cycle lanes and parking spaces into restaurant terraces. Such measures have helped to raise the number of bike trips by 70% over 10 years and cut nitrogen dioxide levels by about 30% over five years. Munich's brightest experiment is the interim use of vacant buildings, which is currently reviving two titans, a 70-year-old department store and the Gasteig Cultural Center. These will host concerts, bars, restaurants and art studios, a typical Münchner mix of tradition and modernity. 
I spoke to two of the team behind Lovecraft, a cultural and event space that is taking over Kaufhof department store in the city's downtown. Creative director Lissy Kieser. We want to provide exhibition space for artists, but also gallery concepts. Retail is on our list where we host a future retail store together with Wied Stiftung. We do lots of community spaces where smaller cultural collectives can present conferences, talks, or whatever event format you can think of. Lovecraft will also host sports facilities and a zero waste center. I think what you can learn from here is the entrepreneurial spirit. Just do it. That's the way we do it. You do things and get things done. And then you need to get partners. In. And I think that's something that we're good at. And that's, I think, something that community is good at. We have corporate partners, like big corporations that enable us to finance certain things. We have content partners, all these people coming in, bringing in their sports expertise, building basketball courts. We're taking care of them. You know, people caretakers who really take care of these parts of our areas because we're just developing the space. We're giving the space and then people fill the space with life and they take care of For Monocle in Munich, I'm Yannick Schmidt. We're back with the curator. And well, we've been through Zurich to Munich. But what is number two? It's Copenhagen, the well-balanced Nordic capital and last year's winner. Monaco's Gabriele Delisanti has more on it. One year on from its triumph in our last quality of life survey, things are going swimmingly in Denmark's capital. Local authorities have greenlit a plan to make its waterfront accessible to swimmers after years of restricting the number of bathing areas. As well as freeing up crowded hotspots in the warmer months, this will make the most of the city's geographical advantages. Meanwhile, its extensive public transport network is receiving a boost. Multiple new metro lines are underway, with the link between Copenhagen and Malmö looking likely, though the two cities are still quibbling over who will pay. The 20-minute connection would make them Scandinavia's largest urban area and a mighty economic, social and cultural hub. The city's housing market has dipped slightly over the past year, with prices falling by a few percentage points. Following the implementation of the ghetto law, which has led to families being relocated from social housing estates, the city has announced that 40% of new builds must go to public housing to encourage a better balance. Crime rates have fallen for the fifth year in a row. What worries Copenhageners most today is bike theft. The war in Ukraine has led to the Danes sacrificing a bank holiday for the first time in more than 250 years, as the cabinet of the country's prime minister, Mette Frederiksen, seeks to boost the defense budget. That's one more day a year when locals will need to cycle to work. So I'm by Copenhagen's harbor and it's a glorious sunny day. It's one of those typical days when it feels like half of the city just comes by the harbor for a swim. Lying on the timber docks that line the harbor side, reading a book, dipping in the water, just soaking up the sunshine. The city really comes alive on days like these. 
However, the number of spots like this one in recent years has actually gone down because city authorities have been limiting the number of swimming spots. A decision that, however, has been scrapped because actually city authorities have announced the complete opposite, that they will be opening the entire harbor for swimmers. So I just came down here to understand what people think about the decision and just get a sense of how people would use an open harbor in their daily lives. I think it's a great idea. It gets so crowded around those spaces where everyone goes to swim and it's not comfortable to be there. You don't really want to go swimming or stay for a longer time, like spreading everyone out a bit more so you can go swimming everywhere. I think it's a great idea. I think it would make it easier to go more often to swim because you don't have to go to specific places. You can kind of just do wherever is closest to you. Yeah, so so definitely make it a lot easier to, to go swimming. I like to go close to um, Fiskatava. I found a spot there that's uh, not so popular. So even if it hasn't been legal, I, I usually just go there. And uh, now that it's legal, I'll go there guilt-free. <laughs> Well, I think it's uh, an amazing idea. I uh, personally think that Copenhagen is a city, or actually the first place I've been living in, where you can do this, like without you know any restrictions, just freely swimming uh, pretty much anywhere. And I think that makes Copenhagen one of the best like features of the city. I'm a big fan of the idea. Once the summer is here, I usually go for a morning dip before work because it's located in the city center and they have some great spots where you can. Get refreshed before uh, you know getting ready for yeah day at work. Munich took bronze with Copenhagen bagging silver, and finally today number one, Monaco's best city to live in this year goes to Vienna, Austria's forward-looking historic capital. Our correspondent in the city, Alexei Korolev, can tell us more. With Vienna's stunning architecture, it's easy to forget its natural beauty. But there are hills, lakes, rivers and great plains all contained within its borders. And as the sun returns, so do the Viennese to the water. Danube Island is a popular spot, as are public swimming areas such as the Gänsehäufel on the Alte Donau a rerouted lake-like arm of the River Danube. Winter has its attractions too, of course, chief among them the world-renowned Viennese balls. Meanwhile, museums have been celebrating the 150th anniversary of the event that turned this city into a global metropolis, the 1873 Vienna World Fair. Although it was a financial disaster, it rekindled European interest in Japanese and Middle Eastern arts and crafts, which in turn served to inspire local artists such as Gustav Klimt, With the city's population expected to reach 2 million people by the end of this year, authorities have pressed on with their plan to build more social housing, furthering a tradition that began a century ago with the creation of Vienna's first subsidized apartments. Norbert Kettner is the director of the Vienna Tourist Board. There's an interesting fact that Vienna is the only old European metropolis which has less inhabitants than in 1910. The other three, London, Paris and Berlin, are much bigger and they were in 1910. So, firstly, it's not a big surprise that we will surpass the two millions this year. Secondly, we are well prepared because infrastructure was planned for a much bigger city, more than 100 years ago. And it's also a good lecture for the Viennese because, you know, after World War II and until the early 90s, uh, some Viennese 
thought that living in a shrinking, cozy or gemütlichen city is a sustainable concept, which is not. Because we need the growth, we need the labor, we need the intellectual impact from outside. Only when you have these, you are a real metropole. Otherwise, you are just a big city. Although Vienna has an embarrassment of natural riches, they are distributed unevenly across the city. To reduce the imbalance, a network of community-run parklets known as Grätzeloasen has continued to expand into neighborhoods devoid of public space. And finally, Vienna's already excellent transport system is seeing two more additions, both produced by Siemens. Driverless ex-wagon trains for the Vienna U-Bahn and new Nightjet sleeper trains for Austria's national railway operator, ÖBB. So to sum it all up, here's Norbert Kettner at the Vienna Tourist Board again. Even not very well-informed people coming to Vienna the first time, they normally would say, oh, I knew that you were beautiful, but I didn't know that you are so contemporary and so modern. So bringing together this rich cultural heritage with modern lifestyle, I think this is what the people are curious about, how we do it. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. We're back with the curator. And of course, to mark the occasion of Vienna winning the Quality of Life survey, we invited Austria's ambassador to the United Kingdom, Michael Zimmermann. He joined our foreign editor, Alexis Self, in the studio. First of all, why do you think Vienna is the world's most livable city in 2023? And and what did, what does the city perform particularly well at, do you think? Many cities in, in smaller European uh, countries do a lot of public investment in infrastructure, in the arts, in, in entertainment, in quality of life. Uh, and that works out to an aspect which I think is quite uh, peculiar in Vienna. That means you don't have to be rich to live well in Vienna. If you're rich, you can live well in many, many cities. But if you're not so rich, if you have an average income, if you don't have any uh, huge assets, then Vienna can still be a very nice place to live in. Maybe a lot of money buys you less in Vienna than in other places, but that's uh, because people who have less money also have a high quality of life. And, you know, Vienna performs well in the hard data, things like crime rates and, and average rent and life expectancy but also in less scientific things such as access to culture and diversity. How much of its success is down to an appreciation for the art of living well, or Lebenskunst, as they say, in Vienna? I think that that is a very, a very important factor, because when you get upset or angry in life, it's often small things that get you upset. And I think Vienna is good at ironing out the small problems of life, uh, things like garbage collection, postal delivery, access to public administration. Uh, these things have a long tradition of being quite well uh, organized in Vienna. It costs money, of course, out of the public budget. Everybody pays for it through uh, taxes. But, uh, but these are services which then give an egalitarian quality to life there. You get the same uh, quality of garbage collection that, that a millionaire gets. And um, these small things, I think, make it overall good for people to live in. And I think for people with a lot of money, 
it's also quite pleasant because they don't stand out. They are not uh, they are not showcased. Nobody envies them their money because most of the people have a, a good quality of life. So you can you can you disappear in that co social coherence, and I think you feel very much a part of the community in Vienna. And I've heard it said that the Viennese are friendlier than your average citizens. Can that be true? It's an interesting question and, and it adds to an aspect which you won't find in all of the cities on your list and that is a certain ambiguity that is lying over the city. An amb ambiguity in language, in uh, gestures, in, in looks. Now let me give you an example. If somebody says, what a nice day today, that can mean anything in Vienna. It can mean it's a terrible day, depending on the inflection of the language, depending on if he rolls his eyes or not. But if you have positive energy, you see it as a positive message. If you're grumpy, uh, you feel the irony in the sentence. So you can create your own little space and you can live your own dreams in Vienna in a way. And for more reflections on the 2023 survey, here is our foreign editor Alexis Self and Monaco editor Josh Fannett. Alexis Self, I, I find myself, for my sins, here with you discussing uh, what we now know to be the, uh, the top four cities in Monaco's current quality of life survey, which you've had the dubious pleasure of um, crossing the I's dotting the T's and um, taking all of the hate mail for, because there's going to be lots of unhappy city mayors, surely, at the unveiling of Monaco's top city 2023 yeah address all mail to jaf at monocle.com i see what you've done there uh, you know this year you say dubious pleasure but you know cities are are the kind of barometer they're 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 the kind of center of of you know what's going on in the world in terms of business politics you know the, as we said in our last discussion north american cities were, were seen as the kind of you know they're often ahead of the zeitgeist when it comes to cultural developments, political developments, but, you know, they're suffering this year. And, and when I looked at the metrics and I spoke to our correspondents in 30-plus cities around the world, all, all contenders for this survey, you know, I kept coming back to Vienna. Vienna is a city that isn't often far off the top of this list, but it's never actually won the Monaco quality of life is that my first 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 time winner first time winner yeah the reason i kept coming back to it you know pouring over the data and it just scores highly in in so many areas you know it's a city with with a lot of history not all of it to be proud of but you know vienna's a small city it's it's, it's two million people which one might very reasonably argue makes it easier to implement certain social democratic policies that improve citizens way of life but you know stuff like rent control and it hasn't affected austria's growing role as a financial center in in middle europa in a rapidly polarizing world it is a center for international peace institutions you know it's somewhere people go to negotiate peace and hopefully you know this year we'll, we'll see peace return to europe and maybe vienna might be the place where those discussions are had you know, it's safe, as we, as we spoke about in our last conversation. You know, security is a big issue for people always living in, in cities. But, you know, especially as, as crime has risen in many places after the pandemic, Vienna has seen its lowest crime rate in 20 years last year. It's green. There are forests and lakes and mountains all within an hour of the city centre. And you get there on excellent 
transport infrastructure that's only getting better. And, you know, it's genuinely diverse. I said it's it's quite a small city, but, you know, especially for where it is in the world, the population is, is 10% Muslim and you can dine on a wide variety of cuisines of an evening. One thing I'll tell you I really like about Vienna and a statistic that stuck with me um, from doing a, a guide there many years ago is that the city itself is Europe's largest landlord, so the largest owner of housing, which allows it to do rent control very well. I know that our correspondent in the city, Alexei Korolov, himself a Russian dissident whose father was a spy, you're never supposed to know, but he says it's true, it exposes another kind of interesting third man-like chapter of Vienna's history. Is the closest European capital to another European capital in Bratislava. And in Bratislava, it has a slightly less ordered, slightly less well-off kind of cousin and I think also an, an interesting thing about cities is their connection to the rest of the country, of course, the rest of uh, the network of other cities. And I think when we think about Vienna, we see lots of things, you know, initiatives to uh, do what you want with different parklets, to protect green space, to not build enormous huge towers, although there are a few by the Danube Canal going up in recent years. They've kept it pretty low rise. They've kept a relationship to the street and they've kept not in a museum-like fashion, but a real connection to the glory days of the past, which kind of pervades as you walk through the city. Are we going to give anyone else a shout-out in this rundown as well? Is it just Vienna, or did any other cities impress you? Clearly, Munich is a place where we're going to be celebrating quality of life in our annual conference. Copenhagen is a, a, a perpetual favourite, has recently been hosting some design events, but um, anywhere else that caught your eye, Lex, in the, in, in the rundown? We've given Vienna an awful lot. Yeah, and, you know, again, security was obviously a big issue this year, but but so is cost of living. Inflation is now an international phenomenon. Some places suffer more than others. But, you know, we introduced metrics this year that really took into account what worldwide inflation has done for city living, you know, so the percentage increase in rent over the past year. And then we always take into account how much staples like a cup of good coffee and a meal out cost. So this year, for the first time ever, the capital of Greece, the ancient city of Athens, has made it into the top 20 at number 17. Athens, it is one of those places that you would describe as exciting because it can feel quite chaotic at times. You know, it has issues with traffic and transport, but it's on the up. You know, it has a booming art scene. There's lots of young people are moving there from around Europe because of the cost of living, but also because Athens was once considered merely a stopover on the way to Greek islands by many from elsewhere in Europe. But now it's it's a destination in its own right, and it's done focused very heavily on improving the city and its cultural riches. Uh, it's it's opened new museums. It's it's work to protect and clean up those ancient temples and ruins and now you know if you live there it's not a stopover on the way to the islands but it's it's somewhere that you you can use as a launch pad to explore the eastern mediterranean so grit in greece some usual suspects from previous years uh, an upsurging milan so much to see and so much to learn from the quality of life survey 2023 alexa self foreign editor, editor of this incredible survey. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com. 
We're back with the curator, and this week the Urbanist Team report from Bratislava, where they've been meeting Matus Valo, the best-playing architect mayor, who has been hard at work delivering a renaissance for the capital of Slovakia since 2018. Brandishing a manifesto for improving public spaces, restoring neglected buildings and renewing pride in a city with a turbulent past, Valo has been consistently popular with voters. Monaco's editor Andrew Tuck reports. One thing we've learned since arriving in Bratislava is that there are no more than three degrees of separation in this town. Almost everyone we've met so far was part of the ensemble behind Plan Bratislava, a book by a network of urban creatives that proposed a new vision and future for their city. Matish Vallo, then an architect activist, was an anchoring force behind it and in 2018 used Plan Bratislava as his campaign manifesto. I wanted to know if that experience had been key to becoming a good mayor. You need to take all the good stuff from that and leave the bad stuff behind. So from activism era, the big ideas, the fact that when you're activists you are a little bit naive, which is a part of our strength. But you need to leave behind the fact that you are not, don't have responsibility. Now as a mayor, when I say something, it means that I need to deliver or I need to come with an idea which is real. From architecture profession, of course, I'm taking the know-how about public space. One of the revolution we're doing in Bratislava is that we are changing public space. Nobody before me did it. All the mayors were some lawyers or politicians in the end of the beginning of their careers. But now I'm the one who understands the importance of good quality public space and how this space can change the perception of its citizen, of the citizen of the city, of how we're living our lives, how we treat each other. Because this is the main thing, the fact that people are living together in a good way, treating each other with uh, respect. That's the main thing. If this is happening, all other staffs are working. One of the fascinating things about how you won that first election was you created this book, Plan Bratislava, and you did that with a graphic designer, with the assistance of other architects. Just tell us a little bit about that book because it's become a bit of a legend about how it took off because it's interesting. It's almost an academic approach to getting elected, but the public understood it, the press understood it. Yeah, in the end, this book was created by 77 people. There was like lawyers, environmentalists, people from finances, architects, sociologists, all the people who are able to put together good know-how about the city. So I put this amazing group of people together and said, let's create together in one and a half year the best plan Bratislava ever had. And I told them, if we're going to have this material, I'm going to run for mayor with your material, but what I'm going to give you back that your ideas in our book, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make them reality. I know in the beginning sounds very crazy, but I was surprised how good uh, in the end it works. The first two years when I became mayor, I was just using this book as a Bible and following everything we invented in the book. And now we have Josh Rudolph, who is the head from Aligned Finance at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy. I began by asking how a Marshall Plan for Ukraine would compare with the original Marshall Plan, which rebuilt Europe after World War II. The focus, in particular in the past nine months, of Russia's brutality has been on destroying infrastructure, civilian infrastructure, a war crime. But because of that, there is going to be an immense degree of physical infrastructure, not to mention human capital and everything else that needs to be rebuilt. So it's comparable in the scale, in the need, 
it's in a couple of senses the opposite of the original Marshall Plan in that that was one country, the United States, rebuilding many throughout the European continent. Here, you have the international community coming together to support one country. And instead of laying the foundation, as the original Marshall Plan did, for what became the European Union, here you're trying to strategically design a new Marshall Plan to deliver a new member state into the European Union. While that destruction is still going on, though, how possible is it to make concrete plans about what needs to be rebuilt, what needs to be built anew, and how much money this is all going to cost? Well, the price tag continues to rise. And the needs obviously change, even as recently as this dam that has been destroyed is creating immense needs in that region. So that's absolutely right. It is a moving target. It is not possible to pick all of the projects, nor would you want to do it all in one go suddenly right now. What needs to be done now is to set up the enabling environment that would bring large amounts of money. And that's going to take a lot of time and political capital. So we need to start that now. And in terms of how that money will work, and I'm sure that there are extraordinary complexities to these arrangements, but are you thinking in terms of loans, of donations, of some sort of investment fund? How is this going to work for the countries that participate? All of the above, loans, donations, grants, public taxpayer resources, but also private resources, also usage of Russian assets, which is something that we have to get to. And the way that a lot of it would work, especially on the public side, would be to funnel the money through the existing international financial institutions that we actually set up to do that original Marshall Plan. We now have those institutions, and they've deepened and developed over the decades since then, so we need to utilize them, but a lot of the money will flow through them. A lot of the experience of those institutions will obviously be useful, and what kind of oversight do the people whose money this is get over the decisions made by the sovereign government? Because this is not going to be a case, is it, of just giving enormous amounts of money to the government of Ukraine and saying, there you go, do what you like. Absolutely right. That is something that the international financial institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction Development, they are going to need to keep up with the need for greater degrees of transparency and accountability. They have had their issues as well over the years. And here you are going to be pouring a lot of money into a country that is still about halfway through its generational struggle against oligarchy. So there are still a lot of issues there. Now, the best ones at building those transparent and anti-corruption systems are the Ukrainians. They have done more in the past decade than any country we've been able to find historically in one decade. And so in some cases, it's going to be the international financial institutions needing to keep up with the Ukrainians in terms of utilizing their new transparency systems that can track the money flows from the start to the end. There's new system called the DREAM program that the Ukrainians have built. That's something that the donors need to create. The donors are trying to coordinate among themselves. They've established this multi-agency donor coordination platform six months ago, but it hasn't really gotten to these issues yet. So they need support. They need boards of civil society experts from Ukraine and internationally to advise them. A lot to be done. 
And now it's time for some music and exciting ones. Next year's Grammys will feature three new categories, including Best African Music Performance to showcase the rise of Afrobeats in the global charts. Our next guest is someone who has long campaigned for this award category. Marlon Fuentes is the former awards department manager at the Grammys. He tells me more why this category is so significant. The award show, I think, it is really an opportunity to celebrate just the best, most celebrated music around the globe. And this is a, a category that has been brewing for some time. Many members of the Academy were expressing their interest in celebrating, you know, this music. And I think what's uh, really historic about it is that is the first time that the continent receives recognition for its musical contribution and previously records were eligible within the global music category which was a, an opportunity for uh, international artists to enter and be considered for a grammy awards nomination it's funny because especially in recent years uh, african artists they are actually having an impact in the global charts so i think in a way it's kind of the grammys catching up with that because it's incredible like uh, for example we have artists like rema i mean doing so so well i mean his numbers are incredible so how did the do you think the continent received i mean do, do you think this is welcome news for the african music industry Yeah, I think, you know, it depends on who you talk to, because I think one thing that's very important to note is that the Recording Academy is a membership organization. You know, it's a not-for-profit organization that represents, you know, the diversity of music makers and professionals in the industry. And I think the, the key here is to signal to all of the amazing uh, music makers and industry professionals in the continent that the Recording Academy is an opportunity to to join. And I think that What's important here is for uh, really understand that this this is a uh, change that happens from within. And so as opposed to uh, this being kind of an opportunity to take a passive approach and kind of see the Grammys as awarding, you know, us, I think it's an opportunity for uh, music makers and professionals to participate, submit their music and become members so that they continue collaborating and, and, and shaping sort of the trajectory of, of the Recording Academy. I think it's definitely uh, an opportunity to highlight just the soft power and influence that music from the continent is having, you know, worldwide. And as you very correctly point out, you know, it's undeniable that so many songs so much so much music is is really making its its rounds as you mentioned you know rema calm down i was recently in el salvador and i could not stop hearing that song So it doesn't matter the language or the continent, you know, this is music that's making its rounds. And so it's a very great opportunity to begin to celebrate and to create an opportunity for those records to be highlighted and celebrated. And uh, it's also important to note that this doesn't keep records out of the general field category, you know, best artist, you know, song of the year, like all of those uh, remain eligible for all of these records. It's not kind of one or the other. And so this is just a, an opportunity, you know, for us to celebrate. 
Do you think, I mean, having worked at the Grammys, do you see as positive the changes? Because, I mean, a lot of other categories cha- have changed as well. They've introduced new one. Uh, it feels to me that they, you know, they're catching up. They know the music industry is changing. And, you know, there's been criticism in the past about, you know, all sorts of things in, in awards in general, I have to say. But how do you feel now coming, um, viewing it as an outsider now, perhaps? Yeah, you know, the the thing about institutions, you know, especially in the United States is that they really serve as a as a measurement for for social change and how society is evolving, you know. And so given that role of institutions, I think it's important to note that it's iterative evolution of a process of representation of opportunity and these categories evolve you know to reflect what's happening it's it's never a perfect process but again it is a participatory process and so ultimately it is about the membership and the community from within to decide on how these changes continue to evolve. So I think that's the the key here is to understand that becoming a member of these organizations allows communities to shape the institution in the way that they see as, as a positive, progressive, you know, endeavor. And I know it's a little bit far, far away, so we can predict who is going to be nominated. But I mean, there's so many things happening in the continent. There's Amapiano, Afrobeats, High Life. You name it. I'm I'm just curious. Can you tell us some of your fa- favorite African artists? Now that I'm actually on the outside, you know, and just kind of advocating and, and supporting, you know, the community, I can talk about this stuff. <laughs> so, you know, right off the bat, I mean, if, if we're talking about just the most, you know, celebrated, you know, music that has really made its round, I mean, Rema, Calm Down, currently number three on the Billboard charts. You know, we cannot skip uh, East Africa, Zuchu, with the song Nani. <laughs> Asake, 2.30, you know, which is an absolute banger. Harmonize, Zanzibar is a beautiful song. Amazing, amazing music. Busiswa, uh, Shoma Josie, Masaki, so many amazing artists that are, are just absolutely rocking, you know, playlists uh, worldwide. And we're really excited to hear that. And, uh, you know, I think this category just again, it opens up an opportunity for us to celebrate, you know. Uh, but the key is participation, submitting music, becoming a member, and voting. And finally, we end the show with some music. It's a special global countdown with some highlights from the Monaco Summer Playlist 2023. Let's talk about the global countdown today. Now, for those of us who don't necessarily know so much about the global countdown, this is normally a moment on the briefing or whenever across Monaco Radio when you introduce us to a countdown from a country. Not today. Not today. I'm a bit of a rebel, you know, because... Well, hang on a minute. We, every time you're in this room, <laughs> we're doing either Faye's favourite songs yes. or the Eurovision Song Contest. We did the whole of the World Cup. Have we run out of countries, Faye, and you're just trying to fill time? We still... we still, But this one is very important, Emma, because the <laughs> July-August edition's out now. And the reason, the connection with it is, for this issue, I made a selection of 60 summer tracks that you must listen to. Okay. Uh, we even have, uh, you know, a playlist on Spotify. But here on the Global Countdown, I'm highlighting some of them. And basically, the list of 60 songs is divided 
getting six different vibes and we're playing one song from each vibe today. So this is Faye's summer mixtape. Exactly. Okay. And and I wouldn't say it's my favorite. I think I think it just kind of works together very well. I hope so. Okay. There might be some controversy here and there. Hey, will you come around and DJ at my house? Yeah, absolutely. If not, I'm if, open for hire. If you're not going to do that, then let's just play some of the songs that you've chosen anyway. Yes. Uh, right. Okay. So these are not connected to any country, any genre. This is stuff that you think we should be listening to in our homes and in our ears. Yes. We start with the vibe on été français. Right. Sorry, my, I know your French is much better than mine. It's pretty good. And, and you know, so ten songs I chose with the best French artists at the moment. There's mm. some classics there. Uh, you know, there's some newer stuff there. This one is very gentle. I know it might be controversial for some because it's the cover of a classic. Music Sounds Better With You by Stardust, which is also French and is a iconic. I love it. But, you know, this is the French version in French language. Let's have a listen. It's Magenta Club and the great Lola Leland with Avec Toi. It's okay, but do you know what I did when I was listening to that? I went and listened to the original by Stardust, and there is zero comparison. Really, really. I, I get why you quite like it, because it's nice in the background, but it's not one of those pieces of music that just, you know, fills you with that electricity, which is what the first track used to do. Absolutely. But, you know, I, I was just thinking about Summer, something mm. a bit gentle. And I think Lola Lilan, you know, all her tracks, if you look at the name of the tracks, one is called Portofino. I think she lives in, in, in a summery dream. And she I, lives where we want to live. Exactly. Yes. So I like this about her as well. Right. So I, I think it's a decent cover, but I agree with you. The original is a classic. There's a lovely Indeed. little bit of humility into it. Some, somewhere along the line in, 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 the, in the song, it says, Moi, je ne sais pas danser, which is, I don't know me, I don't know how to dance. But he just doesn't seem to mind because he's obviously caught someone on the dance floor. He's, he's hoping to catch their attention. Yeah, it's kind of, I've, I've written down notes as drunk stardust, but I'm sure I should give us a little bit more credit. Please. Where are we going next? We are going, well, first I'll tell you which vibe is it. We're going for maritime beats. So it's gentle, breezy, you know, that beautiful summer breeze on a Brazilian beach or something like that. Uh, and this is a very interesting one because they are a Belgian-Brazilian duo, but they are based in Kigali. Um, I try to look out why they're living in Kigali. I, I'm, I'm not sure. But I know they're Belgian-Brazilian and they sing kind of a bossa nova, slightly chill vibes as well. Some electronic here and there. They're called tapioca. And the song we're going to hear is called Lagoas de Ruanda, which means the lagoons of Rwanda. As palmeiras dançam no ritmo das suas ondas. That's lovely. In fact, I do apologize. Um, you're going to have to do some talking because I normally bring in a little drink into the studio. I put ice in it because it's cold, and I'm now. It was such a breezy track that I'm you. Trying to, exactly. I'm trying to drink my iced drink while listening to your summery vibes, Faye, and I've really made a mess of it. And what a wonderful geographical mix, I have to say, because Tapioca, this whole album they released recently is kind of a tribute uh, to Rwanda and their influences as well. But there's a lot of Brazilian music. I mean, it's sang in Portuguese, you know, maybe a Belgian touch here and there as well. And when would we, we be listening to Tapioca? Oh, we will be listening on the playlist as well. In fact, I want to do an interview with Dan. 
Maybe okay. that's supposed that's that's a bit of an exclusive here, but you know, over a little cocktail, exactly, lovely, exactly. a little sundown. Speaking of sundowns, now let's hear from this this man called Stutzi, um, someone who really knows how to make his image fly. Oh my God, he looks so cool. I mean, even the vinyl, I just want to buy mm. it because he looks cool. He has a wear. He's wearing a lovely, I believe, a yellow shirt. I don't know if it's silk. I have to double check that. Uh, and and he's you know, the kind of boy that your mum worried you, warned you about. Mm. If you. Just look, I know, it's lovely, <laughs> isn't it? Um, it, it, it? He's got this rather wonderful, um, is it called sort of like fruit fun or fruit disco? Fruit disco, which I love. You know, I think <laughs> fruits are summer to me. And he released an album, uh, well, an EP. That the songs are called Fruity Mango, Chili Banana, Satsuma. But I chose my favourite from this EP, which is Maracuya Massage by Stuzi. We've been playing that quite a bit on Monaco Radio and I do love it. And actually the first thing I thought was when are Faye and I going to see this man? Yeah, it's I mean, his whole track. It, it's one of those things. If you want something a little bit upbeat, not necessarily totally unsilly. There's quite a lot of silliness and it's warm weather and it's dreadfully good fun. And it seems to have a slight originality to it as well. Absolutely. And it's about passion fruit. You know, I don't like mangoes. I am always anything with passion fruit. I love it. Okay. So including this track by Stussy. Excellent. I'm so pleased that your fruit cho- choice uh, is going to determine our taste of, of music over the summer. But in fairness, they seem to be a band of incredibly well, good, talented musicians as well. Just looking at the way that they perform, they clearly know what they're doing. Nothing, nothing's been thrown together in an upstairs bedroom anywhere. This is this is work. So go and see, see Stutzi if you can um, and send reports back, please, everybody. Uh, right, now, so that's that's the new stuff. You want to take me now back to a dance floor in the 1990s, oh, don't yes. you? Uh, Which is quite a space. It is <laughs> so quite where a, are we going? You know, first of all, the vibe, evening seduction. Uh, so seduction. Uh, yeah, it's a bit know. more banging than that darling probably actually <laughs> maybe maybe yeah uh, but this song is by Latour from the US the song is blue and of course when you hear this track you re- you will remember you know the bathroom uh, scene in a club in the film Basic Instinct which is one of my favorite films of all time as well so it was it was one of the best kind of club scenes in a film I've ever seen I mean let's have a listen to this iconic track that was also also on the Chanel catwalk in LA it was chosen as part of the soundtrack Let's have a listen. It gets a bit more lively than that, doesn't it? We're just we're just building up to that one, but basically it will transport you to a pretty yes, we might can we just bring that music up a tiny bit again? That's it. Right, that's all we need Thank to know because it kind of does that for the rest of the yes. track, doesn't it? Right, so we're, yes, I'm, I'm, I've now got into my little time capsule and I'm, I'm past my bedtime. Um, why have you chosen this? Because we haven't heard this for ages. What was it that brought it back into your mind? It, you know, I have to say, I always look to the fashion shows, Emma. This is one of my music inspirations. Uh, and Chanel did a recently uh, catwalk show, a beautiful one in LA, and they chose a lot of kind of uh, soundtracks from films. There was uh, also the 
Chinatown uh, soundtrack and of course Basic Instinct so there was a, this kind of a slightly noir kind of vibe in the air as well and this track I, I remember how much I love this early 90s American house uh, I love it thank you you're taking us all clubbing thank you oh, talking about clubbing do you accept my invitation to the Discoteca Paradiso every day I would go to Discoteca Paradiso with you I think I, I think you live in a Discoteca Paradiso <laughs> you are one well we have 10 tracks for, for the Discoteca Paradiso I chose this one they're also from the US they're from Auckland in California it's a duo uh, they're called Bridget or Bridget uh, the song's called Angelo and it's being remixed by Space Ghost Let's have a listen. back on that dance floor again isn't it it's getting a little bit warm it's dance floor ready this playlist i have to say and and again it's a new song but you can see the 90s influence there as well so perhaps a good a good follow-up to la tour's blue very good stuff okay finally we were going so well and then you, you give us this at the end a big a big thing from lithuania apologies lithuania if i'm just about to say something rude about you but this is a a, a hugely important person from lithuania Yes, she is Ruta Amor. Uh, her song is Solo. And I have to say, you know, you know, we've we've done this a few weeks ago, actually. Once the, or twice. the Lithuanian top five. Oh, I, yes. I, I'm kind of in love with Lithuania's music scene. And this is a really interesting kind of singer. I mean, she's doing so well. And her album, I think she's very open about it. It's all about nostalgia, a lot of sins, 80s vibes. Perhaps something you could listen on a car if you're driving somewhere in Lithuania, in the beautiful countryside. I don't know. And and the video is very exotic she was on the top of a, of horse. a white horse yeah horse. In, in a club right i mean yes it looks cool M- maybe <laughs> if we you ha- like horses in clubs <laughs> shall we have a listen to ruta more loud for the horse <laughs> yes You're giving it some ear defenders exactly okay. let's have a listen to solo Right, so here's where I take it all back. Um, I don't think the video does the song any favours. Does that make sense? Because having been distracted by the lady on the horse, I didn't really hear the music. I don't, that's not bad. I think it's good. Yeah. I think it's very good. I, I bet like you're it. really glad it's not Andrew Muller behind the microphone today. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and Ruta's tried to be Lithuanian's entry for Eurovision, but she didn't manage. Maybe next year. Next year. Ditch the horse, Ruta. You might do better. <laughs> Monocles, Fernanda Agusto Pacheco, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening. <laughs>